Welcome to episode 15, New Directions in Prevention of Sex Abuse, Meaning and Purpose for Frontline Clinicians, by Dr. Charles Flinton, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist, and Cynthia Rinker, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. From Clearly Clinical, learn, grow, shine. Hi, my name is Cindy Rinker, and I'm sitting here with Dr. Charles Flinton. And we want to talk to you today about new directions in sexual abuse prevention, the meaning and purpose for stakeholders and frontline clinicians. But before we get started, I'd like to uh, tell you a little bit about the work that we're doing and why we're doing it. Dr. Flinton? Sure. So um, I've been working with sex offenders for about 30 years now. And over the years, I've worked uh, doing evaluations for the core and providing treatment uh, to offenders to prevent uh, recidivism. And what I've noticed over the years is that a lot of these individuals could have been prevented from their first-time offense, prevented from creating victims, if early intervention was available. Uh, it, there's a huge impact in our society uh, regarding sexual abuse. If we could provide those early interventions, we would be um, preventing victims. So over the years, with this idea, Cindy, you and I, we created something called the Blue Rock Institute, which is aimed at identifying those individuals at risk of potentially acting out. And once we do, once we are able to um, identify some of those issues, what is it that we can do to help them uh, before they create victims. Um, some of the information that we have about sex offenders and why they do what they do includes um, sexually compulsive, you know, knowing they have sexually compulsive behavior, or they're looking at pornography excessively, or they have sexual interest, interests that aren't legal. If we can have an open conversation about uh, people coming into therapy because of these reasons without going to the the term sex offender, we might be able to prevent uh, victims. And in doing that, it's about understanding both who sex offenders are and who potential sex offenders are so we can do early intervention. So that we can understand this, we need to get break some of the stereotypes that we have about sexual offenders. One is the stereotype sometimes prevent offenders or potential offenders from seeking help from the get-go before they've actually acted out. But it also um, prevents us as a society from uh, creating opportunities for that early intervention. Why are stereotypes important? Well, it's important to understand what stereotypes are to start off with. The first concept that I want to introduce is fundamental attribution error. This is a tendency to attribute personal factors in the explanation of other people's behavior, but only situational factors to our own, to our own. So again, we hear the word sex offender, we automatically think that person's a bad person. We don't think about the situation leading up to it, not to justify sexual offending in any way, shape, or form, but um, we have these ideas that it makes the person bad. and. Um, it, prevents us from really analyzing and understanding the underlying uh, motivational forces or the, the, uh, the behavior behind it. Why do we do this? Well, there's another concept called uh, intolerance of ambiguity. It was a concept that came out of some research from UC Berkeley in 1954 by a researcher by the name of Fresnel Brunswick. Intolerance of ambiguity is when when one is confronted with ambiguous, incomplete, or confusing information about a particular group of people, they form um, very simple ideas that makes it um, less ambiguous to them. It makes it so they feel like they can control it. So in other words, rather than understanding complex situations, they'll fall into either good, bad, yes, or no. There's also something that uh, we have to work on is a stereotype threat. Stereotype threat is um, when a person who is the target of a stereotype realizes that everyone has this idea about them, 
They just kind of give in to, give into it. This leads us to Edwin Lee Mertz, uh, the sociologist's um, concept of secondary deviance. So once an offender uh, uh, accepts the label that they were given, such as high risk, dangerous, dirtbag, or whatever you want to say, they allow it to become an underlying force behind their societal interactions. All of these things will do two things. One is it may actually increase recidivism for some people, but in terms of the prevention piece, it may actually prevent them from seeking help for fear of getting those labeled. So stereotypes are really um, important to, to kind of break through and learn to understand, which is why we want to put our emphasis uh, in the uh, prevention area. So it's really important for us to work on including people who are at risk of um, engaging in potentially inappropriate sexual behavior. There's some research from 2003 from uh, Kachiopo, who I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, Hawkley and Bernstein, on uh, social exclusion and self-regulation. And what they point out is that happiness, health, and well-being are strongly tied to whether one is accepted or rejected, um, such that people deprived of close social ties suffer more negatively, physical and psychological consequences than those who have strong social networks. Now, part of this is is making room so that judgment, if somebody comes in for help, we don't shut them down right away, call them bad, or as Cindy mentioned earlier, therapists saying, we can't treat you. Um, this forces them into kind of a marginalized, um, socially excluded uh, realm where prevention is not going to occur. So it's also important that when we talk about social exclusion, what happens when people are rejected? Well, they're more likely than others to behave aggressively. They're less likely to act in pro-social ways, such as cooperating with someone or providing help. They exhibit an assortment of cognitive deficits, such as impaired logical reasoning. They show distorted time perception, an emphasis on the present as opposed to the future. Um, and they exhibit self-destructive tendencies, and they often make foolish, foolish uh, risk-taking um, and unhealthy choices in their life. So part of this, to help people uh, seek help, uh, seek um, assistance out before they act out, is kind of learning, opening your mind to accepting them, that they're actually seeking help. One of the things we do early in treatment with people who have sex offended, we, we help them distinguish the difference between the behavior they engaged in and the person they are. If they get stuck in, um, in combining those two things, then the shame becomes a, a part of, it becomes an obstacle to treatment. Um, they, they're also concerned about, uh, people's, uh, other people, how other people are going to see them or their perceptions of them, or if they're having these thoughts but haven't acted on them yet, they're worried that uh, people are going to report them based on their thoughts rather than their actions. And that has happened in, at times where, where systems have gotten in place where no behavior has actually occurred yet. So what we want to do is change our framework and how we see how we think about uh, people who sexually offend, as well as how we think about prevention. So this is really important. We have a certain way of thinking about sexual abuse and sexual prevention that has nothing to do with prevention to start off with. It's because we have these, um, these ideas in our head that we make automatic associations. For instance, when, like I said before, when you hear the phrase sex offender, almost everyone, their brain uh, goes automatically to high risk sex offender, extremely dangerous, gotta watch him, you know. But we, doing this work, what we want to do is to expand that frame that we can actually understand that there's some good people out there that have some problems that, that can potentially be treated in a way uh, that they're not creating victims. Weyer and Stroll um, talk about th this kind of association that we make uh, concerning how we process information. So they were specifically spoke about how people store related pieces of information in w 
what we call referent bins. They're little parts of your brain that when new information arises, we attach it to that pre-existing notion of what we have. We organize the information into these referent bins because so our brain works faster. It's very useful and it's very positive. But because for so long we don't even think about uh, the phrase prevention when it comes to sexual abuse, our brain automatically goes to stopping people from doing it again as opposed to stopping people from doing it the first time. So researchers uh, have found that framing decisions and problems in a positive light generally result in, a less, in less risky choices. With negative framing of problems, riskier choices tend to result. So if we can uh, talk about uh, sexual abuse prevention um, by opening up uh, the conversation about having, you know, people who do this, engage in this behavior as not bad people, but someone making a, a bad decision and framing that in a different way, then I think this opens up a way of... Uh, opportunities for them to get help. And this also, this is very difficult because over the years, there's been so many years of um, repeatedly uh, sexual abusers are awful. They're mean. There's something wrong with them uh, as opposed to really focusing on the behavior and understanding the behavior to do prevention. This is going to be very difficult because it's long. The longer you hold an idea uh, the harder it is to change. So we have a lot of work to do to try to get prevention into the mainstream consciousness. Yeah, and the media only focuses on the very worst offenders and when something really bad happens. But in reality, that's maybe only, what, 10% of the time? Of, Probably, or 10% of the people like who are defined as sex offenders? So when we, when we started this prevent, when we started this, uh, presentation, we wanted to just go out and talk to people about, you know, just regular people on the street. We got our, our iPhones out and started videotaping people and asking them questions, such as when you hear the phrase sexual abuse, what does that mean to you? Or when, when you hear the phrase sexual abuse prevention, what does that mean to you? Or have you ever involved yourself in a situation to promote as healthy sexual interaction or promote healthy sexual development? What we found was, you know, most people automatically go to the secondary or tertiary prevention. How do we address it once it's already happened? The other part was, you know, more of an emotional response rather than a, a cognitive um, response of, wow, I wonder what, hap what happened to make that person do what they did. It was more like, why would someone do that? Um, so it was, it was, again, it was much more emotional and, and putting people in these stereotypes or talking about restorative justice versus how do we, how do we um, find, uh, help these people before they create new victims. So as, uh, as you recall, we, when we started doing this, we started working with uh, Joan Tabachnik from the Association of Treatment of Sexual Abusers Prevention Committee. And so I've eventually joined that committee after we started that project, which a lot of the information that we will be presenting did come from uh, parts of that committee. So in that committee, one of the things that we wanted to do is develop um, a deeper understanding and definition of preventing first-time perpetration of sexual violence. You know, it's really important that if you're listening to this, that you're probably a therapist and you may or may not work with sexual offenders, but you hold a lot of information. You can network in a way that um, you can educate people around you, both professionals and non-professionals. So what we talked about in the ATSA committee is four specific objectives. Work on the frame. We have to frame all of our work as prevention work, not recidivism work, but rather prevention work. So it's frame, explore, describe, and highlight. So explore is is we want to explore ways of preventing first-time perpetration of sexual violence. We want to describe the importance of professional relationships in building comprehensive prevention programs. It's not going to happen on its own. And it's us professionals that have the knowledge of this 
that we need to educate people. We also have to highlight that there are approaches to prevention out there. As um, uh, I think Cindy mentioned earlier, that both of us have had the experience that people have been arrested and said, hey, I knew, they, and then they say, I knew I had a problem, but my therapist wouldn't talk to me about it. Or they told me not to say anything about it. So why do people sexual, how does sexual misconduct happen? Well, what we do know is that there's multiple factors. And what we also know is that there's a series of successive approximations that happen in most cases where the offending behavior doesn't just happen. There's a, uh, there's a series of steps before that, um, a sort of steps of normalization of certain behaviors that wouldn't otherwise be normal that leads them down the path to more uh, risky behavior, including sex, sexual misconduct. Yeah, and I also think the important part here is the why question is really important, but it's each offender will offend for different reasons. There'll be different motivations behind it. So because what we know is there's multiple factors involved, we can get caught up in the question why for a long, long time, but there's not going to be a universal answer to the why question. The better, the better question is, is how did this happen? How, and we, what we do know from people who have worked with sex offenders know that it wasn't one day they just walked out and offended, that there was a series of events. Um, in some cases, we call that seemingly unimportant decisions or suds that led up to their offending behavior. So one example I'm going to give is a non-offending example of someone who um, is going to have an affair and they're going to be uh, unfaithful to their partner. So what they do is it starts off with some dissatisfaction in the relationship. That's the first step of these approximations. And then maybe they're not communicating so well about what their needs are and how, how they want to get their needs met in healthy ways. Then they start thinking of, eh, maybe I just need to stay out of the house more and not come home. And then eventually, um, perhaps uh, they're looking at ads um, for dating sites or whatever, and then eventually maybe they meet somebody. Each time they make the step, they had the option of jumping off that um, trajectory, but they didn't. In the series of successful approximations, they ended up moving in the direction of, of acting out. So our goal is, is to educate people about what those early steps are and when intervention is. It could be, particularly with sexual offending, we often see that somewhere along the line, the person became sexually compulsive, where they were using sex as a way of dealing with negative emotions. Right. And the with the, with the advent of the internet and the access to pornography or to chatting or dating sites, uh, the, the ability for them to act out uh, has gotten easier and easier over time. Uh, that's why you know, one of the things is we're seeing a, a huge increase in, in sort of normal you know, people who would never be a sex offender if the internet didn't exist or probably wouldn't be a sex offender if the internet didn't exist. So again, what we want to talk about here is primary prevention. That's what we want to focus on. All of our other, all of the other work that we we have been doing, both in in the sex offender world, is called secondary prevention, which is the immediate response after sexual violence has already happened, and tertiary prevention, which is a long term response to sexual violence, where we're preventing them from. Uh, you know, not reoffending, but we really want to change our framework to understand how we can help people before they uh, before they offend or create victims. Uh, one of those things is to change and shift public perception of who these people are. So, um, and yeah. So I want to take just a, a little step back. I think in order to really co comprehend and get out of that frame of we just work with tertiary prevention, I want to explain a little more detail what primary, secondary, and tertiary prevention are. So an, exam an example of these uh, prevention levels or strategies 
Uh, I, I like to use the example of um, a house. So if a house catches on fire, um, we want to rebuild it, uh, figure out how the fire started, and take steps for it not to happen again. That's tertiary prevention. Secondary prevention occurs when um, you, you're starting to notice that you smell smoke or you, the wires in the house are hot or something. So you're going to notice that there's warning signs. So you're going to um, intervene there by, by putting better insulation on the wires, maybe replacing some wires. But at that point, we haven't had a crisis yet. Primary prevention is that we rebuild the house right the first time. So the work that I think we're doing, we want to focus on the primary prevention. That's what we want. We want to motivate people is to network and get the word out there. But a lot of the work we do will balance as clinicians between that primary and secondary uh, prevention strategy. So in order to do that, we have to shift public per perception. So again, when we talk about sex offenders or people who are afraid they're going to act out, we don't have their back when they come into treatment. They come in asking for ha help and we have to be reactive and say, we need to report you or we need to lock you up or call the police. If people understood that they have problems and we're supporting their habilitation and rehabilitation, we can integrate people back into society rather than rejecting them and creating opportunities for them to offend and reoffend. Support and connection are cornerstones to, to doing that. So again, we're going to take a step back and we're going to figure out where do these, the formation of attitudes and beliefs come from? We can use this uh, as both pointing out the problem, but also talking about the solution. The formation of attitudes and beliefs really come a lot from media and society. Um, what, it, like I said before, as I said a couple of times, you'll never hear the phrase low-risk sex offender. As soon as you make that association, um, we go to that, that negative thing and the media reinforces that. If we get the media to kind of understand, the question is, is, you know, um, how did this happen? Were there attempts at early intervention? What could the interventions have been more positive, pro-social things? We're moving in the direction of changing our attitudes and beliefs from less of a reactive knee-jerk reaction to uh, um, uh, understanding and proper intervention. And, and opening a conversation rather than shutting it down. That's right. So this com comes down to our social and work environment. Social work environment has a huge uh, uh, impact on how we think about things. So it's about talking about it. One of the great things about um, working um, with Cindy is uh, one of the great things that happened working with Cindy is just one day being at the gym talking to somebody who ended up being a psychiatrist ended up opening avenues for us to do some training regarding um, prevention. Now, when we hear things on the news, we move in a direction sometimes of condoning certain behavior. We've all heard the phrase locker room talk, and the term's been used as an excuse for uh, making degrading comments toward women. And when that happens, what do people say? Do they say, oh, that's just locker room talk? Or maybe they think, wow, that's kind of offensive in their mind, but don't say anything. When do you say something? When, when is it that um, members of the community end up participating in that discussion reflexively. So essentially what we're talking about is developing a, a grassroots movement. This is uh, in line with Tarana Burke's um, uh, Me Too movement. Uh, Tarana Burke is a uh, social activist and community organizer that began using the phrase Me Too way back in 2006 on MySpace. Her intention was to build empowerment through em empathy uh, for women of color who have experienced sexual abuse, particularly within underprivileged populations. In 2017, Alyssa Milano encouraged spreading the hashtag Me Too as a part of awareness um, campaign in order to reveal um, sexual abuse and har uh, harassment occurring in the community. So this is a good example of somebody starting something and we all just keep passing it along until the information goes around. This is what's going to change um, public perception. So when we are talking about shifting public perception, 
if we framed it in a way that no one has the right to touch you in ways that make you feel uncomfortable, what, what if we had changed that the language to say, and you don't have the right to touch someone else in that same way? The first, uh, the first uh, phrase kind of talks about how the victim feels. And the second phrase is accountability on the person who's actually doing the touching. Um, so when we're talking about uh, the framework and how we as clinicians want to change uh, the way we do our work, it's one of it is how do we describe the work and why we do it, and then how, how we do it, and what, what does that look like? So starting the conversation is a really important um, part of our prevention work. Again, our goal here is to educate the community, educate other professionals, and get people into treatment or intervention before something happens. It's an extremely provocative topic. Within moments, uh, you can, you can get, into, get into an argument with somebody about um, who sex offenders are. Because people have very strong emotional reactions to them. So I, what I want to do is just start off talking about how not to start the work. How, how not to start the conversation, rather. So we don't start the conversation off. And although some of these things might be true, they're somewhat provocative statements. For example, starting off the conversation saying abusers can be anyone. Well, um, people have a knee-jerk reaction to that. Well, you'll, they may respond by saying, well, not anybody I know. And right then you're in an adversarial uh, discussion. Another way of not, not to start it is uh, recidivism rates for sex offenders are not as high as you think. Um, because people don't believe that. They think that they're extremely high risk, so much so is we have websites dedicated to identifying where they are because they're going to do it again. Um, another conversation stopper is I treat convicted sex offenders. Often my experience has been when that conversation starts is it becomes somewhat of a curiosity to them and there's um, there's a little more drama to the conversation than kind of curiousness. What's, yeah. what's your experience? It, it, it is like, wow, I don't know how you do that. Or um, what's it? They don't even want to know what it's like. And they want to move away from the conversation as quickly as possible. Unless they've had something, someone in their, someone close to them that has had that experience of being uh, somehow uh, in the system. Uh, so what if we what if we actually started the conversation by talking about preventing sexual abuse? Uh, for instance, uh, what if what if I, you started the conversation by saying, "I work every day to prevent sexual abuse or sexual victimization, or and I, I you know or something to the effect like I care deeply about community safety and that's where I dedicate my time." I mean, it just opens the discussion up in a much more open ended way. So. Maybe, while well, as you're listening to this, to think for yourself, how would you introduce it? Well, one way would be to say that I work with uh, people who have sexually abused in the past. I work to ensure that no one is sexually abused again. It's difficult work, incredibly rewarding, and my successes mean a safer, safer community. So it's also important to really think about who your audience is. Again, we're, we want to open up the conversation. If you were talking um, uh, with a victim advocate group, you may discuss it differently than if you were talking to a bunch of police officers. But it's using a language that someone can relate to and understand. Again, we want to promote a discussion. So now that we've talked about how to have how to open the conversation, how do we um, start the conversation, or what what events uh, do we have to consider uh, to be able to have the conversation to start with? You know, seeing seeing an opportunity to engage in that conversation with somebody is probably not all that different from noticing a potentially abusive situation in which you're going to intervene. Right. So one example is to be at a at a party and notice that you know people are drinking and and a man starts um, saying sexually degrading things to a woman or maybe starts groping her. Is that something that you want to you would want to you know step in and say you, you're noticing that the the uh, situation demands action 
Um, and, but it, whose responsibility is that? Well, ultimately, it's your responsibility to act, right? Well, yeah, you have to choose whether or not you want to and then how to do that if you, if, if you decide to do that. And if we are talking about sexual abuse prevention, then it is important for us to say, hey, I'm noticing that you're, you're making this person really uncomfortable or you're talking about things or you're touching this person without their permission and having that com- and starting that conversation, even if it's uncomfortable. So there's um, situational factors to consider. So a lot of this goes back to um, bystander research that uh, Joan Tabachnik has been teaching us about. For example, if people remember the Kitty Genovese um, case in New York, uh, a woman was uh, raped in a park and several people heard her screams, but no one intervened. So this level, is, I mean, of course, that's a very kind of intense situation. And sometimes it's hard to grasp why there was a diffusion of responsibility in that situation. But and even in more subtle situations, like a conversation at, at um at a party or at the bus stop or something where you, it's easy just to walk away from because it doesn't seem like there's any imminent harm. But it's in those, those less obvious, more subtle situations is when we get to kind of spread the word, don't you think? Right. So let's think about what some obstacles arise, um, uh, in terms of having, uh, intervening and having those conversations with people or maybe even intervening in a more intense, dangerous situation. What the research tells us is that 55% of individuals will offer help if they're alone, but only 22% will offer help if others are present. This is a very important statistic in understanding this issue because we're speaking to you. You're going to be the one with this knowledge. So it's not about the number of people around. It's taking confidence that you are educated and is going to make, uh, and you're going to make some of the right choices. Also, even though there might be a lot of uncertainty about how to interact, I think we, it's about understanding the gravity of the situation and how important education is. Another um, obstacle that confronts people or plays a role in this decision-making is the perceived level of urgency or danger for the victim. Uh, if we're talking about more subtle situations where we're really just disseminating information, there's not an obvious victim sometimes. But maybe it's, it's learning to correct people's thinking. So it's really understanding the gravity of the work that we're doing. So there are a lot of factors also that will promote higher engagement um, in, in making interventions. And again, we're talking about potentially dangerous situations and one that don't seem so dangerous where we're actually correcting thinking and educating. The people with uh, repeated exposure to situations are more likely to intervene. Uh, when you have multiple channels or ways of expressing yourself, um, people are more likely to uh, intervene. And when you take community ownership, that is that you understand how how all of this impacts you, but also impacts us all. So again, that's probably one of the most important factors is taking community ownership. So there's five things we need to know. One is that prevention is possible. Two, understanding those who abuse is key to prevention. Three, not all people who abuse are the same. Four, youth are still developing. And five, it takes more than individual change. And these five things to know um, were as a product of the um, ATSA, the Association for Treatment of Sexual Abusers Prevention Committee. This is a big part of our project right now. So in terms of the first one, prevention is possible. It's important to understand that sexual abuse is not inevitable. Uh, to prevent the initial harm, we need to prevent first-time perpetration. Um, a common a common thing people might say to others is, don't get raped. But what we're not saying is, don't rape. And number two, why understand those who abuse? To truly prevent sexual abuse before anyone is harmed, we need to know more about the adults, adolescents, and children who sexually abuse others. Again, this is beforehand, before the perpetration. And also, it's really important to to know that not all people who abuse are the same. As we said before, there's multiple factors. There's different motivational factors. The phrase sex offender does not begin to describe the complexity of those who abuse. 
Uh, if we if we really want to do prevention, we need to delve deeper to understand the differences um, between adults as well as adolescents and children who sexually abuse. Uh, number four, children and adolescents are still developing. Where do we invest our resources by getting help to children and youth at risk of developing problematic sexual behaviors? We can change their developmental trajectory. With our help, these children and teens can grow into healthy, productive adults. Some of the techniques that we have to do this, you know, has, has to do with the ACE research, the adverse childhood experiences, attachment, social skills, um, understanding um, how abuse, how pornography uh, impacts the developing brain. And also the fifth one, um, we have to change the environment. Prevention is more than education and individual change. Our work must also consider institutional responses. I mean, we need to talk to our legislators, our, our bosses, our coworkers, but we have to work in the direction eventually of making public uh, policy changes. And we're not going to do this until we change social attitudes that encourage um, uh, prevention and discourage sexual abuse. A quote from the Institute of Medicine from a health promotion study in 2006, it is unreasonable to expect that people will change their behavior easily when so many forces in the social, cultural, and physical environment conspire against such change. This has to be, um, um, we have to work on all this together. There has to be an ecological approach to this. You have four parts to an ecological model of change. The individual, uh, rela relationship, the community, and societal. The individual has to make efforts to make change on their own, to educate themselves and to not to act out inappropriately. We also have people in our lives that we have relationships with that can intervene. So in the ec ecological model of change, for example, if we were going to talk about, say, drunk driving, there's been great um, efforts in the last 20 or 30 years to reduce drunk driving. One is educating the individual about the consequences of drinking uh, and car crashes, and then also educating people about having designated drivers. This is the relationship part, is having friends to say, hey, what's going on with you? Do you need help? Can I help you? The next part is the community. So in the context of the drunk driving model, in the community, this is um, the bartender who cuts people off when they've been drinking too much or stop somebody from driving off if they've been drinking too much. On a societal level, we've been creating more strict laws around drunk driving. This is what we need to do with sexual abuse prevention. One is educate the individual to get help, to identify the signs of the problems, um, educate people um, so that they can intervene with their friends and family if they need to, educate the community so that we're not afraid of approaching situations that are potentially harmful, and, and uh, finally, societal is making uh, global changes to policy and the environment. So another example of a um, successful uh, public intervention program for prevention is called the Dunkenfeld, Dunkelfeld Project in, um, in Germany. So uh, Dunkenfeld means dark field. Um, it was... Founded in 2005, initially funded by Volkswagen, believe it or not, I did not know that when I first heard about this project. In 2008, it began to become um, a government-focused. What it does is it provides service to individuals who are sexually attracted to children. Uh, this would be pedophiles, who are people who are attracted to prepubescent children, and phebophiles, sometimes referred to as hebophiles, are people who are attracted to uh, peripubescent or um, uh, uh, children in their pubescent phases. The project um, uses TV ads, public ads, um, posters, bus, um, uh, bus uh, placards, and uh, between 2005 and 2008, over 800 people contacted the program for help. 50% of the individuals traveled quite a distance um, for the assessment, uh, and in those Three years, 200 people participated. Ten years later, as of March 2018, 9,515 individuals sought help through, help through this program. Another uh, 2,894 people 
traveled to one of the sites for diagnosis and advice. Um, 925 participants started the, started the therapy program and 360 completed. Now, if you go to YouTube and look up the Dunkelfeld Project, you'll see uh, you can find a TV ad. And just imagine if we were able to do, do those TV ads here in the United States. And the one thing about uh, Germany is they don't have reporting laws. So there's less fear about people coming forward and talking about either their interests or even some of their behaviors. So it, again, it opens up. That's that societal thing where we're not just reactive. We, ha we have to open up a discussion about people's uh, uh, issues before they act. Uh, and not react to them. So although we don't have the TV ads, um, one of the projects that we've been working on is the Blue Rock Institute, uh, which is to get people um, uh, into the program uh, before they create victims. The goals of our program is to identify and understand relevant factors that occur in the early stages of sexual misconduct. For example, like what beliefs do they have, what thoughts, what um, precursor behaviors are we seeing? A second goal is identify points in time in which interventions uh, could stop the sexual behavior. Again, a lot of people, it goes too late um, and they end up acting out. But our goal is identify those points prior to them acting out. The third, the third goal was to identify effective conduits for adults at risk to abuse and then to receive help. So there's... What we're really doing is we want to do social marketing. This is a psychological, sociological approach. So we think of the four P's of marketing, place, product, uh, promotion, and price. So when we talk about price, really what we're talking about in this context is reducing the cost of coming in. For instance, the shame. As we were talking about the stereotypes that we had before, just the thought of being put in that category with a sex offender, or even if they haven't offended yet, to even come close to be associated with that group promotes all kinds of shame. It's a high cost for these individuals. So we have to increase accessibility um, by reducing that shame and getting help. It's also important that we identify the place where they can do it. We try to do some um, anonymous phone calling, um, people can come in and just talk to us, um, but whatever it takes to get them in, uh, well, that's what we'll do. We've gotten a lot of feedback over on the website that we have some videos there that people relate to. In other words, they get to kind of hear some stories of people similar to them without having to come in and uh, disclose. So um, uh, part of uh, doing this, we wanted to not go into this blindly, so we decided to do a our little study regarding prevention that Cindy's going to talk about. So the, the pilot study that we did um, was uh, we took a qualitative approach. Uh, one is just our experience and years of intervening and interviewing with offenders and talking to colleagues who do this work. The second was uh, focus groups. Um, we had three groups, the total of uh, men. We interviewed verse 24, uh, four were unadjudicated, meaning they hadn't had any kind of uh, um, legal consequence for their behavior. The other 20 were either charged or convicted of some kind of sex offense, um, typically those who looked at uh, child pornography, and then information from intake assessments. Um, our pilot obstacles was, you know, trying to re how do we reach our target audience? Um, tracking and identifying clients and mandated reporting. So how do we help clients um, get into our offices or, or contact us without the fear of, of these uh, obstacles? And essentially what we end up doing is just educating them about what the reporting laws are. And surprisingly, we still get a fair amount of people coming in seeking help. Uh, so what did we learn from the different focus groups and our experience? So um, one of the things that came out in the focus groups um, were the influence, early life influences that um, 
that was part of the trajectory of their potential acting out. One was uh, that they were molested as children, exposure to pornography or sexual behavior at a very early age, um, physical abuse or being beaten by their father, and masturbation that led to social awkwardness and shame. Um, also, many of these guys had behavior problems both in and out of school prior uh, to engaging in sexually risky behavior. So we want to point out that these are not excuses for their behavior, but their reasons. And there are, and it helps us understand that if we do have uh, adults or, or children or adolescents in our office, if they have these underlying early life experiences or adverse childhood experiences, then we might want to be doing more education about uh, sec- you know, problematic sexual behavior. A lot of them also described having family problems and events that were significant markers um, uh, prior to their uh, compulsion uh, to act out. Some examples that came up were death of a parent, uh, infidelity by a spouse or a divorce, a breakdown of a relationship with the spouse, or a career failure. Most of them had hindsight awareness. They knew their life was spinning out of control. Most described incorporating escalating and concealing behavior. Half later, uh, half of them found out later that others knew when they thought they were hiding their behavior. That was a big part of it, is that a lot of these guys really thought they were hiding their behavior, but other people knew that something was wrong, but never confronted them. Right. If we start with confronting these people, and frankly, maybe confront's too strong of a word, but just approach them with a conversation about what's happening, a lot of this stuff would not escalate. Right. You seem different. Is there anything I can do to help you? Or is there anything you want to talk about? So part of that is three salient points that came out of the research for us. And again, this is not the why. There's a, the, the why is tough, but how did it actually get there? How is it that they came close to at least towing the line or crossing the line? And one is a double life. That they all kind of knew that their life was spinning out of control um, and were doing things to cover up their behavior. In some cases, people had separate bank accounts for going to prostitutes or um, uh, they had a, a different uh, identity identities online. But it's that double life, which is a big red flag, that might indicate early intervention is doing. And at this point, again, we might be talking a little bit about some secondary uh, prevention strategies. The other thing was, is the, so that was the first point, double life. The second a salient point was invisible lines. All of them knew that their life was kind of spinning out of control, but once they crossed a certain line into more risky um, behavior, it was hard to go back. They didn't really see the line, but once they crossed it, they knew they couldn't go back into more, They well, they felt like they couldn't go back into more normative behavior. Or it was it was easier to cross it again and again. The third salient point that we identified was um, hypersexuality or sexual compulsivity, which is uh, having kind of a high sex drive or at least using sex in a manner to reduce negative emotions. Yes, there's a controversial term in the community which is called sex addiction. Um, But if we do have a more common language of talking about uh, that without the judgment of whether or, or if it really is an addiction versus a problem that we need to deal with, um, I think it's, it's, it's good. Um, the manifestations of this pre-offense behavior that we have found in our uh, focus groups and our experience include excessive masturbation, excessive pornography use, Um, excessive sexual behaviors with consenting adults. And again, as I said earlier, the computer is making it super easy to get on Grindr or Tinder or these, there's actually apps that um, facilitate uh, affairs uh, between married people. Um, There's a focus on impersonal sex, the use of prostitutes, cyber sex, strip, strip clubs, and diverse sexual outlets. 
So then we come back to, well, now this group, they, this, our focus groups involved both people that had not offended and some people who had offended. So when we think of what would have stopped them, so what would have stopped them or what does stop them is really the question. What we found was a large majority of these guys were saying that they lacked information in four crucial areas. The first were the consequences. Although some people understood that their behavior was illegal, they didn't really understand the intensity of the, of the sentences in prison, lifetime registration, and the devastating effect that it had on their families. That last part, the collateral damage, is something that almost no one really thinks about. Enforcement. You know, they were unaware of what the police are doing. They, um, they didn't realize that people were looking at them and that they are looking and that they will find you. Um, I call this a virtual anonymity is that people think that whatever they want to do online is, a, is only a secret to them. Well, anyone who has, um, looked for a pair of shoes on the internet lately or any other product knows that you're suddenly can be bombarded with ads of that, for that product. Whatever you do on the internet is not anonymous. The third area that they were lacking was technology. The three A's. The three A's. Accessibility, affordability, and anonymity. Um, you know, whatever you want's out there. There, you, you, you uh, people and it's there for the taking and, and, I, and that's you know something that the clients have said it's like if you walked into a store and there were pairs of shoes there that were absolutely free and free for your taking wouldn't you take them <laughs> right so. and the last area the fourth area uh, where they felt like information was lacking for them is they didn't know where to get to help or if help was sought they were rejected or told they didn't need help um, we have a very good example recently of um, someone who uh, was looking at child pornography and already been arrested for it and wanted help. And he was looking at uh, pornography excessively, like a couple to three hours a day. And the insurance company rejected it, saying he didn't need therapy, that he was normal for someone in his 20s. Right. A therapist said that, not an insurance company. Well, it was a therapist at the insurance company, yes. Right. Or through the insurance company. All right. So what was the catalyst for change? One was a break in isolation. Either a, a friend or a family member confronted them. Many times it's the police knocking down their door. Um, sometimes the new job, the relationship and secrecy starts to get too much. And they, they realize the need for help. It's also important, the outreach message that we um, walked away with after our pilot research there um, was under, is sexually uh, compulsive behaviors exist, that they're not isolated events, that it tends to worsen over time without intervention and can result in serious, I mean, very serious consequences. And again, we're not even talking, we're not necessarily just talking about the legal consequences but it's the collateral damage to uh, the family members, uh, the inability for the, the, the newly found offender to ever get a job again or be um, included in society. An another really important part um, that we walked away with is, uh, and this has to be part of our outreach message too in, in uh, promoting prevention, is that many people with sexually compulsive behaviors that are on that trajectory of maybe abusive behavior or downloading child pornography, is that ultimately they're seeking something that most of us want. Emotional satisfaction, self-esteem, confidence, love, um, intimacy, sexual satisfaction. Um, but they're just going about it in extremely uh, uh, problematic ways. So some of the outreach results that we that we've experienced is that one, it's difficult to determine the number of calls we get. We get a lot of hangups. People take that step of calling and, and when you answer or they get the voicemail, then they'll hang up. Um, we know a lot of people are looking at our website. We can do that either through um, the analytics of the website itself or, you know, Psychology Today gives us a monthly report to tell us how many people viewed our website or viewed our information. 
uh, word of mouth seems most effective um, and currently providing um, or pr providing consultations versus the over the phone or via email can sometimes be uh, a stepping stone for someone to coming coming in because we're providing them with information and confidence that we're not going to have a knee-jerk reaction in helping them. So to expand this further, what we know also from our experience is that we need to get insurance companies involved. Um, you know, I've been doing some trainings with um, uh, some nursing schools, for example, of identifying paraphilic or sexually problematic behaviors in non-forensic settings. Um, getting out there and spreading the word that way is really important. Um, insurance company and frontline health professionals often see these things first or they hear it from a family member. So why? Why is this important? Frontline physicians are the first people to get a glimpse at the problems. Um, access to intervention for those uh, who can't afford it. Um, a lot of private companies, um, they're, you know, they're not going to provide a lot of um, promo, pro bono services, but if they're going through an insurance company, those um, insurance companies may be the first. Those insurance company-driven hospitals or physicians uh, might be the first people to see the issue. Um, also, people might be going into the hospital for things unrelated to the sexual compulsivity, but it's revealed through that. Uh, sexually transmitted diseases, <laughs> for example. Right. And a married man, you know, can the can the frontline physician ask more questions? Um, and it is, you know, it's also important to note that um, even though we don't have a, a diagnosis for sexually compulsive behavior based on the DSM, um, the ICD-11, uh, which is coming out in a couple years, uh, is going to be including compulsive sexual behavior disorder in the, in the diagnostic manual that uh, more insurance companies are moving towards. So there is getting, we are starting to see insurance companies and, and communities realizing that this is a, a problem that yeah. needs to be treated. Yes. And also, you know, there's, uh, there are organizations out there um, that will help. Thorn is one of them. Another one is Stop It Now. And of course, the Association of Treatment Sexual Abusers Prevention uh, Committee. Uh, can also provide some resources. Uh, there was also um, this American Life actually uh, took the risk of talking about um, talking with individuals who identify themselves as uh, minor attracted adults and what that's like for them. And I think that open again is opening a discussion and a conversation that there are people out there who have. Um, certain interests, but they don't want to act on them. They don't want to hurt anybody. But if they're isolated and no one, and people have a reactive uh, knee-jerk reaction to them and just want to report them for fear they're going to do something, then they're never going to get the help that they need. So as we wrap this up, I think it's important to under understand that what we're talking about is a grassroots level intervention, a grassroots movement. Um, we have to educate uh, our friends, our colleagues, um, people in the community that we might not even know, uh, if we can influence the legislature, do public policy change in any way. Um, it's about just getting out there and talking about it. So I'm going to leave you with a few questions. One is, what stops you from intervening? We need to understand what that is so we can overcome that and work toward primary prevention. And like I said, sometimes secondary prevention here too. Um, and what would it take for you to intervene with a friend? What might be an obstacle if you knew a friend that was having some sexual compulsivity issues um, that may be moving in a problematic, potentially abusive direction? Um, and what would it take for you to intervene with a stranger? How would you respond if you were at the bus stop and you overheard a conversation that was condoning or at least supportive of sexual misconduct? Um, toward others, and what would it take for you to intervene with a larger institution? Maybe it's where you work or your local government or whatever, but just some thoughts to leave you with. Um, and the last quote that we'll leave you with is about courage, 
Um, and Eleanor, Eleanor Roosevelt said it in 1946. When we, when will our consciousness grow so tender that we will act to prevent human misery rather than avenge it? Right. Well, thank you. We hope you found this um, informative and that you can help us uh, spread the word about sexual abuse prevention. Thank you. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.